what Satellages does is, uh, so our mission is to stop deforestation. It's very simple. Remote sensing doesn't stop deforestation. <laughs> but then we happen to work for a remote sensing company and we happen to know a lot about uh, forestry and uh, land use and uh, uh, what people do in the, in the tropical regions, uh, commodity production, supply chains. So we know we knew a lot about these things, and then we put uh, we tied some knots together, and something started to emerge. You should believe in change, right? Otherwise, you shouldn't do it. If you want to stop deforestation, you, you can become cynical or nihilistic. Yeah, it will never stop because uh, the money, the world is driven by money. And, but uh, yeah, it doesn't work like that. So you should believe in the willing. You should believe in the in the inherent goodness of people. So people are inherently uh, good. Like there's no. I never met anyone who is pure evil. Most evil is clumsiness and naivety and stupidness. The, all these evil, so-called evil companies. There's only wonderful people working there who re, who are really committed also to the same goals as uh, as you and me. Arjen Vreelink is the director and co-founder at Satelligence, a company that's focused on stopping deforestation using satellite imagery. They work directly with commodity suppliers, so people selling cocoa and coffee, for example, to understand the reasons behind deforestation and how alternatives can be found. Some of these companies come across as being evil sometimes behind a lot of the deforestation that we see. And we talk with Aryan about how real change can happen when partnering and working with these companies rather than against them. A quick mention of the sponsors before we get started. They help me get better gear and spend more time to be able to do some of these recording in person. This podcast is sponsored by the Radiant Earth Foundation. They support machine learning practitioners in the earth observation industry by providing open access geospatial data and tools and support programs like the Stack Spatial Temporal Asset Catalog that help find data. They're currently accepting nominations for the 2022 Radiant ML Hub Impact Award. So if you're doing anything related to agriculture in Africa, you can head to the link in the show notes uh, to apply for a chance of winning a $5,000 cash prize. This podcast is also sponsored by Element 84. They're a geospatial software engineering company that's focused on big data problems. And so one of the things that they've worked on is getting the Sentinel-2 imagery on AWS open program. So it's a lot easier to access. I've actually had Dan Pallone, their CEO and co-founder on the podcast to talk about the journey of how he started the company and where their vision is. You can also find that in the link in the show notes. With all of that said, I'm Maxim Lenneman and this is my conversation with Aryan Freelink. I don't know if you know, but I like starting these conversations in the same way every time. Um, I like asking people how they would describe themselves. So I'm, I've been thinking like how you would answer that. I'm quite curious to know how would you describe yourself? That's a, that's a very good opening question and also very embarrassing for your, for your guests because, uh, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. I actually, uh, I, I, uh, ask these questions in, uh, job interviews. So okay. I, I asked them if you, uh, leave your current job, how would your teammates describe uh, you or mm -hmm. what would your teammates miss? <laughs> okay. Um, but so it's a bit of a similar question to this. And then how I would describe myself, I have uh, no idea. I hardly think uh, of myself in the third person. Yeah, like if you were to give it a shot. Um, then I would say, uh, yeah. Uh, broadly interested in about uh, 
everything uh, enthusiastic about almost anything uh, very resilient so I'm very good at handling disappointments <laughs> how so uh, you mean you want an example or uh, yeah Mm. so I don't I don't have any concrete examples but the way I have a so I have a deep uh, conviction or uh, idea about the contingency of life right <laughs> so you can become a policeman or a fireman and there's no like you can create the conditions to become it, but you can't, there's no recipe to become it. Right. So anything that happens could have happened differently. <laughs> so how do you approach that? How do you navigate? How do you navigate life like that? Um, we're, we're going all in from the get go. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's very good. I mean, the only, uh, the only interesting question uh, about life is death. Huh? So any, any conversation should be about life, meaning everybody should talk about death all the time. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's uh, the biggest thing. Uh, what was your question again? No, I mean, like, I'm just trying to get to understand how your brain works a little bit more. Oh just, yeah. No, I don't know. I have no idea. It's just that, uh, that's also, yeah, I don't know. It's also, I don't think that I'm the person, uh, the best person. Like, I don't even understand how other people's brain work, let alone. That's why I wanted to talk with you as well, because I've had that feeling that you were often saying that, that like, you're not the person to, to think about that but but you do think a lot yes and so that's why now i want to take the time to like pick your brain a little bit more and dive into we'll, we'll get about the remote sensing and, and earth observation but i i do like asking that question about like how people would describe themselves and because i, I think it's quite revealing about like how people think like where they decide to go and that's why i'm poking around a little bit so yeah. if we if we go to like the question that you ask like how would you how would you know, the people you work with, how would they describe you? How would they describe me? Um, uh, I would think, uh, uh, well, again, enthusiastic, uh, committed. Um, experienced. Uh, and again, uh, uh, broadly interested in a lot of topics, uh, but also at the same time, uh, I don't think I don't take anything seriously, <laughs> starting with myself. And and maybe this is also key to do. So I don't take myself serious. I don't see myself yeah. as a great thinker or particularly intelligent. So, and then I think most people take like they judge the world the world with themselves as a reference, and I think I also do that. And then, like, if I take myself as a reference, it's very difficult to take <laughs> the world very serious. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, so I think uh, that, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe then I can, I can, uh, uh, I can get back to you with a quote from yourself. 
Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So you you were an intern uh, in our company about uh, uh, two years ago before COVID, and then uh, at the end of the internship, um, uh, you did a presentation of what you learned, and then the biggest compliment to me was when you said uh, that. Uh, you were very uh, surprised or happy to see that you could work as a person and, and an organization on a serious topic and still have fun. And this to me was on the one hand, it was uh, a compliment to us because that's that's what we want. Like my number one mission in life is uh, that other people enjoy their life. And since most of the time you spend in your job, you better have a nice job. So if you don't have a nice job, just find another job so that was really meaningful to me uh so thank you again for that but then uh, in addition like i think i ask you that because to me it's like doesn't everyone do that like i assume that everybody enjoys what they do <laughs> in their daily life and then you came with the example of the i think the aerospace industry with all these super serious yeah. uh, engineers that especially take themselves very serious yeah so I'm I'm very flexible and open to any kind of persons, but persons who take themselves very serious, I'm very very skeptical <laughs> about them, and highly uh, allergic. So I'm like, that's like a natural natural enemy uh, to me. Like I can't so I can't imagine working in a in an environment with uh, people who take because to me, if you take yourself too serious, I see it as a lack of self confidence. Right. But that's like my, <laughs> um, probably it's a wrong conclusion, but that's just, so we're getting in uh, how my brain works uh, as we speak. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would think that, so you should enjoy your life and don't take everything too seriously. But this is like, because life is contingent, like you can't, you can pretend to control everything, but you don't. Uh, so take it easy and enjoy the fall. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun that you mentioned that because like I've thought about that presentation like a bunch after as well like about that aspect that I, I, I do think it really did like it was an example of like a working example that yeah you, you can do really impactful stuff and, and we'll get to that in a bit while still having fun and I mean like just even before we press record like just <laughs> seeing some of the team again and just laughing yeah. about stuff yeah um, have you always worked in places like that? Yes. So, uh, and then, then, then again, I thought this was an attribute of the companies I worked in. Uh, but in every company I worked in, uh, I had meaningful human relationships. So to me, this is the meaning of life, right? Uh, to have uh, meaningful relationships with other humans. And I still... Uh, I still see, so I worked for five or six companies. I think this is the sixth. And every single company I worked for, I still see those uh, people. But I must say, maybe not in the way that people expect. Like my best friends, uh, I see them once a year, <laughs> right? So that that's my social frequency. <laughs> So those people maybe like there's there's one guy I uh, I go to Brussels with uh, every year to the to force them the open source uh, conference yeah where they also uh, sell this stuff <laughs> uh, so that's an example and with him I share one day of overlap uh, 
working overlap. So I quit the company and then he was my successor. Okay. So he came after me and then uh, there was one day overlap where I uh, worked with him to onboard him uh, to all the stuff that we did. And then we liked each other so much, we Im- immediately made a, a dinner date. So we went out to eat dinner and drink beer. And it was a uh, first love. <laughs> <laughs> love on first sight, I must say. So, and uh, I still see him. And uh, just as an example, um, and, 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 and this, I think it was 10 or 15 years ago. And the way I work with him is exactly the same way I work with you. <laughs> like you, Max, but also Max as an intern. So yeah. I don't make any uh, distinction between if I'm working with uh, with the intern or uh, the data scientist or a doctor uh, yeah. research, whatever, or CEO. To me, it's all the same uh, people. If you say something meaningful, uh, you get my respect. Because before that... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So... Let's go there. Like you mentioned, we'll get into this intelligence and all that, but I feel like now is a good time to bring it up. So how do you, because you're, you've kind of started the company as well with Niels at Satelligence, right? Mm, not specifically. If you, if you take the broader term, if we would make a movie about it, probably there would be uh, a part that the writer would write me into it, but uh, technically it didn't happen like that. Okay. Uh, so maybe to give a yeah, let's go there then. Like, how did how did yeah. Satelligence start? So uh, Satelligence is uh, uh, Niels and I. Niels Wilat is the uh, other director, uh, whom I've known since uh, our uh, student days in Wageningen University from the dark '90s. So we met <laughs> each other in 1997 or something, and we were both in the in the student swimming club. Uh, we enjoyed swimming. We liked the same music. Then we did the same. Uh, we did a different thesis, but with the same supervisor in uh, Indonesia in 2000. And then that supervisor started a company called Servision, and we started working there together. Then I left Servision in 2007, and Niels stayed working there. And then Niels, like fast forward uh, 2016, uh, Niels founded uh, Satelligence. And then after one or two months after he found it, he asked me to come back. So Niels is one of those persons that I <laughs> keep seeing yeah. uh, outside of work. He asked me to come back. So I said, no, yeah, because why would I do that? I really enjoyed my uh, uh, previous job. Okay. And after he, you've had a few uh, jobs, you also really become appreciative of the, let's say, uh, the class becomes more half full. Like if you're younger, you get more easily annoyed by like the negative stuff. Okay. And then when you get older, you learn to count your blessings and say, okay, there's shit everywhere and I can handle this shit. And in the pros, the blessings are really good. So. Yeah. So I said no. And then, uh, uh, but then it was my wife who actually said, uh, yeah, you should always like, I've always been just a team member. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in uh, every role in every company my wife said no you should be uh, like a team leader or uh, a leader once at least once just try it <laughs> so i thought okay this is the opportunity and then uh, i said okay let's do it together so i joined satelligence in 2017 and i brought some people from the uh, other company as well like this was the condition for me to uh, to join uh, because i had all these crazy ideas that i that I picked up and learned in the nine years that I didn't work for Servision, you know, because right. in Servision there was basically we're doing the same thing with intelligence as we did back then, 
but at that time you had to pay for uh, satellite data. That, uh, the satellite data would come in on a CDR <laughs> by mail. So there would be the bubble envelope every, yeah. every 30 days or 35 days when there was a new EOS, uh, EOS uh, satellite image available. And I would put it in my computer, process it. Uh, but conceptually, uh, the forest change detection that we do is still the same. So we could already do it. But now uh, the market uh, in 2016, the market became more willing to pay. Uh, satellite data is for free. There's this thing called the cloud. So I don't have to invest $5 million for uh, hard computing hardware. I can just uh, pay for what I need. So all these things came together. Uh, and then Niels is... Uh, He's really good, uh, like he has a really good intuition for uh, for the market, right? And then on my side, I never even thought about starting a company because my commercial side is like zero, or at least I thought. Like, And also, I didn't have any interest in that. And uh, Neil's very good in the commercial side. So I thought, okay, so there's the commercial conditions is there, uh, the technical and the market conditions are there. Uh, let's see what we can bring. I have all these crazy ideas that I wish I knew when I worked at Sarvision. Like I learned this stuff in the other companies. Right. The only thing is there's these guys that I work with now <laughs> that I know are capable of implementing these ideas, but they work on the other side. But then we had enough funding to, uh, to let them uh, join as well. So they joined and then I thought, okay, let's do it. And that's basically how uh, Satelligence got, got started. Can you... Uh explain me like at a high level what intelligence does yeah oh no it's almost gone we had this beautiful uh, business card here <laughs> that had uh, like our mission in the background but what intelligence does is uh, so our mission is to stop deforestation it's very simple so we want a, a zero deforestation future this is because like um i studied tropical land use in wageningen so uh, uh, natural resource management, so nature conservation in the tropics, that's my field. And then yeah. on the side, I, uh, I learned about this thing called GIS and remote sensing in university. I thought, whoa, this is really cool. So I, I also graduated uh, in that field. And Niels actually uh, graduated in the forestry department in Wageningen on forest policy. So uh, we know a lot about uh, uh, forestry in the tropics. Um, we've been there and we saw all the destruction uh, that's going on. And we're really committed to, uh, to ending the deforestation there. And we think uh, that remote sensing can be a great tool to achieve that, uh, that goal, that mission. How so? Like why remote sensing? Like that, that was a thing I wanted to also explore is like, Stopping deforestation is the thing you, you want to do. Like, that's the mission. Why is Earth observation the tool that solves that problem? Earth it's the tool because uh, we happen to work at a remote sensing company. So I must be honest, we started uh, with it. We just discussed it, uh, the, the classic uh, solution looking for a problem, right? And then um, actually... So there's no this this remote sensing doesn't stop deforestation, <laughs> but then we happen to work for a remote sensing company, and we happen to know a lot about uh, forestry and uh, land use 
and uh, uh, what people do in the, in the tropical regions, uh, commodity production, supply chains. So we know we knew a lot about these things, and then we put uh, we tied some knots together, and something started to emerge um, together with the notion that if you look at the problem of deforestation, there's like the classical approach would be uh, the governmental uh, sector. So governments enforcing their laws uh, to stop uh, deforestation, but maybe this, the law are not strong enough, maybe the law enforcement is not strong enough, maybe there's some corruption. Uh, apart from that, the political and governmental pace of frequency is glacial, like it's every five or ten years when this turnaround and new laws. Uh, maybe there's the UN, World Bank, that kind of institutions, same problem. So lots of funding, uh, very little uh, executive uh, power. And then on the other side, classically, there's the, there's the campaigning NGOs, the, uh, the activists who I see as uh, putting, like they, they are um, one issue parties. Basically, they're one issue political parties, very okay. executive uh, and activistic Greenpeace, Mighty Earth, WWF. So they put this on the agenda, but they are very polarizing and accusing. Okay. Um, but that's their role. I mean, that's they 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 create the political agenda. But the real driver, the real um, yeah reason for the the big deforestation, uh, for example, in the 80s and 90s in Indonesia, is the commercial sector. So those are northern hemisphere. Uh, consumer markets uh, with associated manufacturing, retail and uh, trading companies that source from uh, Southeast Asia. So if you want to tackle deforestation, maybe that's a good place to look. That's why we thought, okay, if we found intelligence and give it a really commercial mission, because our, our premise is that you can't have you can't have a sustainable or a company fighting for a sustainable goal without it being economically viable. Yeah. If you don't have an economic viable business model, there's no reason to be. So you don't even have a platform uh, for your message. So that's a condition. Um, and the other one, instead of fighting uh, uh, the enemy, why not join the enemy, so to say, and cooperate and engage with them and see uh, how you can help them uh, make a change because this yeah it's this is a personal conviction of me is that companies don't exist there's only people so companies are abstractions okay and there's just there's marks uh, across me so I work with Cargill Cargill isn't the most evil company in the world but there's uh, there's John and Hank from Cargill who are the most wonderful persons you will ever meet and they, they, they have zero evilness in them. Mm. So <laughs> this is one of the things I think about a lot, like where's, where's the tipping point? Where become, where become five humans uh, an organization, <laughs> right? Where does that happen? Like, how do you explain that shift then that happens where there is this like very surreal thing that happens when you do meet people from these companies that you yeah. think are the most evil companies ever and they're like wonderful people yeah. have you found a solution to that yes well there's no solution but I, I i'm starting to be aware of why this happens and this is like i just described the political governmental uh, uh frequencies like four or five year intervals uh that's that's the the pace of change yeah 
um, then if you look at uh, uh, companies, they have traditionally a one-year uh, base, like a financial. That's budgeting, uh, right? That's right. budgeting, right. and that's that's like they they can change on that uh, interval. Uh, if you look at fashion, that's maybe the fastest is twice a year. So there's a right. new new uh, fashion industry. Uh, if you look at uh, cultures, maybe it's one generation of change. So maybe 20 to 30 years. So companies are ruled by the previous generation, right? Uh, but the work is done by the current generation. So the people you meet of companies are actually one generation behind <laughs> uh, the actual uh, beliefs and cultural uh, changes. So it takes one generation for a company culture uh, to change. And this is also something, uh, yeah. And and this is why people perceive these companies as evil. It's the same as that, like if you smoked in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't seen as something bad. Right. My side anecdote, uh, semantic stretching, like how words become the, the the meaning of words changes over time like the word innovation innovation used to be a very neutral word uh like in the 40s and 50s now it's a very positive word it has a positive connotation so if you do innovation that's all we do innovation that's great but then people don't realize cigarettes are also the result of innovation <laughs> right but still it has a very positive uh a connotation end of the side action this is also like how my brain's work uh, brain yeah. works very serendipic um how did we get here yeah so the, the 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 perception and perspective of people uh about themselves but also about other people like their social context and about their environment changes and this change um doesn't happen over time like you don't like fashion, you just go to the store, buy the new fashion stuff and it changed. But these cultural changes just take longer um, to take part. And that's why you probably don't notice, but where you do notice is these like, oh, this company is evil. That's not evil. It's just your, what you're seeing is the, 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 the cultural values of 30 years ago, which right. are perceived as evil now. <laughs> So it takes a generation because the people working at this company now, like uh, your peers in uh, from your study, they will be the managers of like 20 years ahead. So how does, do you see intelligence as like speeding up that process? Like, is that what you're trying to do? Um, yes, yes, very much. Um, I had to think about it. I wanted to say no, not at all, because we're neutral and stuff, but we're not. And and this is also so we believe if you you should believe in change, right? Otherwise, you shouldn't do it. If you want to stop deforestation, you, you can become cynical and say, or nihilist think, yeah, we'll never stop because uh, the, the world is driven by money and the political uh, power, George Soros, uh, Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it doesn't work like that. So you should believe in the willing. You should believe in the in the inherent. Uh, that's not English, but goodness of people. So people are inherently uh, good. Like there's no. I never met anyone who is uh, uh, who is like pure evil. Most evil is clumsiness and naivety and stupidness. 
Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is the belief in that people uh, will and can change. And um, you can do that by, that's, that's why we took this stance. Like you can take the stance of Greenpeace or uh, Mighty Earth and we're friends with them. Uh, they have a good, they have a good message uh, and role, but it's not necessarily helping uh, those like evil companies to change. So what we do is uh, say, okay, you're very evil, but we can help you uh, become a little bit less evil. But then I like the way that's phrased. Yeah. This marketing people uh, phrase it differently. <laughs> that's not my expertise, but that's basically yeah, what we're doing. And, and yeah, this is something I find very heartwarming. Uh, like the, all these evil, so-called evil companies, there's only wonderful people working there who, re who are really committed also to the same goals as, uh, as you and me. Sorry, as me, I, I can't. I, I don't know what you think, Max. <laughs> it's a mystery. Maybe I am that pure evil that you're talking about. Yes, yes. The pure evil person is the person without an opinion. Like you, Max. Huh? <laughs> Aviation engineers. <laughs> yeah, that's that was a while ago, I guess. So yeah. I'm on the road for redemption. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so why is data a data-driven approach the, the way to go? Like this to me feels like it's a matter of telling stories. It's a matter like you mentioned earlier that what got you into that is like you went to Indonesia, you saw deforestation firsthand and that got you that that's what at that's what made you want to solve that problem. Yeah. Do you think like, why is it not that, you know, taking those people from those evil companies and like going, let's, let's go there together. Like you'll see it and you'll have the same realization that I have. Do you think that's more effective than like using data and showing a plot? No, but my point is then you don't have to do that because they already do that. So the people right. I talked about, they do go to the field. They know right. more than I do right. about, uh, uh, and they do have programs. A lot of these companies have social programs uh, on the ground uh, nowadays. So what they need is to convince their bosses. Right. <laughs> right. And that's where the data comes in handy because like we, we like to say, uh, I think the, the satellites satellites don't have an opinion about the earth so they just see so they're evil stuff the satellites are like one of the most evil things ever created <laughs> by man this we should yeah this is a fine already it's the most productive podcast ever that i have been in uh, it's also the first but yeah satellites are pure evil <laughs> so my, my point still holds like why don't you take the boss there like in, the, the person in charge, basically, like be it the person you directly talk to or the person who's like actually has the, the, the impact to do that. Because it's recursive, right? The boss has to convince his, his boss, which is the shareholder, which is another abstract blurb who doesn't yeah. exist. So there's another thing. There's these companies that are evil, but only wonderful people. And the boss is also a wonderful person because his daughter is studying uh, at Wageningen University and telling her dad, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then he says, yeah, I can't, you know, there's a shareholder meeting and I have to come up with these numbers. And that's that's where the data like uh, comes in. They can show, okay, this was happening. That's an, that's a beautiful thing about uh, remote sensing. One of the beautiful things, uh, especially satellite-based remote sensing, 
everybody knows the scale story and the most people think about uh, spatial scaling like oh we can see whole countries but the, the most one of the most powerful things is that you can scale in time and this is mostly overlooked like you have a time machine yeah. <laughs> at your fingertips so you can show even if your algorithm is wrong uh, it doesn't matter because it does matter but it's less relevant because you can still see the the trend right it goes up or down and uh, i think this is also the gap where remote sensing is very powerful it's not it's not so the gap between zero zero and one like the biggest the biggest gap it's one of those books with too many examples i think it's peter thiel, peter <laughs> or, thiel yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's also evil isn't he like you tell me you no, said nobody I think was. he's yeah I have to look at it, but I don't think he's anyway. So that that's the biggest gap. And then this also yeah. That's also why intelligence is not focusing on the Netherlands. Like said, we couldn't do wonderful yeah. things in the Netherlands. And then there's this no-go area in the Netherlands, North Oostpolder. I don't know if you know it. No. Every remote sensing company has this demo of this polder okay. agricultural area in the Netherlands which is like uh, man-made. It's like God created the earth and then uh, the Dutch created Holland. Well, part of that, it's like... Oh, it's these like fields with like yeah. many different colors, right? Yes, that, yes. Right. Yeah. If you can't, you don't need algorithms for that. Yeah, like, it's like you can do it in, in Microsoft so. Paint can solve that. <laughs> like it doesn't count. Don't show that as a demo example. Um, but anyway, so that's why that we don't add value as a remote sensing company, we think, uh, especially what intelligence does. Also like deforestation is not that big of a problem. No, and place. yeah, but the, the, the main point being is that Holland is one of the most densely centered or measured yeah, yeah, countries yeah, right. in the That's world. It, so right. what are you going to do? Go from 90 to 91% information. It, it's not really, but the whole of Africa, nobody knows anything. And this, this, you really feel an information gap that's very valuable. And um, so this is now, but especially uh, what I, how we got here, the historical information gap. So you can see what happened. Uh, so deforestation speeding up or speeding down, uh, the influence of like a new commodity gets introduced and how does that affect the deforestation patterns in a certain landscape? There's so much uh, uh, stuff that's, that's unexplored and, uh, and laying there for us to be discovered. I want to get back to the, the shareholders part. Um, as I guess a lot of people started looking into like, how does the stock market works and trying to understand that at a high conceptual level? Cause I think that's like one of the things I really took away from, from the time it says intelligence is like, yeah, wanting change is great, but like if there's no financial incentive, it's like good luck. How do you convince shareholders that all of this is worth taking attention to like paying attention to when all you see is like a line go up or down and if you don't if you don't do the if you don't maximize profit the company next to you has an incentive to do so because their line's going to go up higher than yours yeah and if you're a shareholder and you want your line to go up you better invest in that company yeah how do you solve that problem and say like, wait, actually it's more complicated than that? Um, it's actually, the basis is very easy. It's about survivability. So before, right. before optimizing profit, you have to exist. 
right? And be there in 10 years. Yeah. Got it. That's, that's the shortest answer. And then it's about horizons. So the problem with a lot of like capitalism, overheated capitalism is that the, the horizons are too short. Uh, if you would think in 10, 20, 30 year uh, horizons, the shareholders would also act differently. This is, an, this is happening as well. So sustainability has been like seen as a liability, something that costs money, maybe to, uh, to be ignored or greenwashed uh, or put away in the corner. Uh, but companies are increasingly starting to become aware that if you do not run your company sustainably, you will not have a company anymore in 20 or 30 years. <laughs> So it becomes a condition for uh, sustainability. Right. And, and, and I think uh, more and more at the core, at the strategic level of, uh, of organizations. So it still is like a financial incentive that's just moved uh, along. Like the reason I'm asking that is I, I hear a lot of people saying like profit maximizing is like, first of all, like making a profit is bad and then profit maximizing is bad. The way I understand it is you're saying it's just like a, you're just still seeing it through the same lens, except you're looking way further. No. Yeah, well, this is part of it. So one of the problems with, uh, let's call it a neoliberal uh, disease. <laughs> okay. It's a disease, Max. Can you uh, expand why? Yeah, because it's like taking an idea which is uh, at root not bad, but then extrapolating it uh into ridiculous uh levels also in holland where like everything got privatized and the market solves everything it's just it's reductionism so right. this is the problem so the problem is not that you maximize profit the problem is that you only use one criterion to judge the success of your company or society that's the problem because if you and this is also it's a false dichotomy it's not that oh we should let go of uh uh, profit maximizing and we should focus on uh, maximizing uh, biodiversity that's also wrong so you should that and that's the beauty of the 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 model of uh, kate rayward the donut economy i'm not sure if you No, familiar. i'm not familiar can you expand on that a bit yeah it's i'm not like i didn't read the book <laughs> yet but uh, uh it's it's quite simple so before it was economists uh were very much uh only focused on uh, on financial gains, so uh, profit maximizing. And uh, Rayward says is, uh, is there's actually there's there's a bottom line. Like you don't want people to be in poverty, so there's like a minimum uh, a minimum line of uh, of income and uh, and stuff people need. So you should meet that. But there's also a ceiling, right? And there's donuts, so you have two concentric circles. So there's the bottom line where you don't want to go below because you get into poverty and, and, and terrible things, but there's also a ceiling and that's the ecological, uh, let's say, uh, capacity of a society. And this has been lacking in any other economic theory. So there's no, there's no ceiling, no, nothing right. pushing back uh, this economic uh, pressure. So how do you enforce something like that though? Like who who puts that limit where do you put that limit 
where you put the limit. So this this can be uh, very, um, uh, let's say, scientific. So you could look at, uh, for example, environmental health or public health. So there is it is right. like the, there are laws for uh, health um, air pollution in the Netherlands, for example. So you could do that. Uh, but this is something that should evolve. And it also involves a lot of um, yeah, democratic processes, uh, cultural willingness, and uh, maybe maybe the donut looks different in India than in uh, the right, Netherlands. Right. And and that's the the neoliberal is like this one one criteria profit maximizing, and it's the same over the whole uh, the whole globe. And then 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 you get these excesses. So let's back let's get back to intelligence. How does intelligence make money, like at a high level? Uh, by charging more for our products than it costs, uh, Max. <laughs> oh, damn it! That was a stupid question. <laughs> a but like, how do you how do you make sure you're still there? And like to you know follow up on that conversation, how do you make sure in ten years you're still there? Because if you want to stop deforestation in ten years, we're still gonna need people to be there to work on that like how are you thinking about that um us as a company yeah um, yeah well this is something that maybe or is that even the right question to ask i don't know but it's it's maybe that uh, i told you before like i hardly do any planning in my life <laughs> Uh, but I do uh, get this sense, like there's these patterns that you pick up yeah. and then you start applying them and these patterns become on the one hand more detailed, but on the other hand also more abstract, so more applicable to broader uh, territories. And this makes like, this is how humans, this, like, this is how you progress. If you're a kid, you're obsessed with your Lego and stuff and then you get older and you get bigger and bigger pictures you learn abstractions yeah. uh, so this is also how i do it and also because the world is so volatile it's very it would be pretentious if you could if you would claim to be able to predict more than one year ahead right so what you do is like or what we do we have this like abstract mission zero deforestation but there's also stuff that's happening at different bases and then what you should try to aim for is build an organization that is like can maximize learning, right? So you pick up the new stuff, you adapt a little bit and you move on. Right. So this is also uh, uh, my personal goal for intelligence. So maybe we're not a deforestation monitoring company anymore in 10 years. Right. I don't know. Got it. Very probable we will be in the environmental, biological, nature-based uh, field highly probable but maybe deforestation is solved let's be positive right because it we can state for sure that uh, like the deep if you if we would only do and forever uh, zero deforestation or deforestation monitoring i don't think we have a we would survive how so well, the, there's, 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 there's too many factors, uh, like there's the thing that, okay, maybe humanity solves deforestation, then why would we be there? Right. 
that that that's one thing like the problem is not the problem anymore but the other is more classic uh uh what's it called uh, markets that are maturing so after a while right they become standards and ways of doing things and then you get competitors that focus on uh different strategies like we are very much focused on customer intimacy understanding the customers uh, and maybe a bit of product leadership but after a while this will be figured out and then you get the operational excellence companies and they just go for cost-based pricing uh, cut all the margins and outcompete us because the incumbents are there right right. so the zero deforestation is like the is kind of the fit that you found between the skills that you have and the problem that you're seeing and so that's the thing that you're working on for like the foreseeable future but that's totally up for change yes yes and the thing is i'm not saying we won't do it the thing is i don't know no no yeah that's that's yeah that's what i yeah that's how i understand it it's it's not like this is what's going to happen i'm thinking about the audience (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're smart they'll figure it out um it, it's about like adapting to to the change then like, yeah okay. yeah so one thing i wanted to touch upon is if i understood correctly i think last time we talked you told me that you guys took funding for the first time is that did yeah. i get that right yes maybe yeah so we would like to uh like in silicon in america there's the angel investors and uh, and the whole uh What's it called? Uh, investment ecology, uh, very much. If you can, if you have charisma, if you have a good story, you can pitch. You have some sense of market. You can collect money and start a business. In Europe, we have uh, government. <laughs> so especially, well, you know, uh, there's a lot of EU grants that you can uh, that you can use to uh, to kickstart your company. There's a lot of ESA grants. Uh, there's a lot of uh, country-specific grants, uh, and then this is where, like, the countries between uh, or within Europe, uh, the differences between countries, like Dutch, are very Puritan and uh, very. The government is very neutral to companies and want to give all a chance. In France, it's much more from a vision, and they say, "Okay, we're going to pick the winner and support them and build a big." Uh, uh, a big player out of that so that that's a difference but in europe as a startup company it's pretty easy to get started with let's say cheap money like there's no obligations there's no you don't have to provide equity you right. just have to uh hand in tons of paperwork but you know so that's from the the government like they yeah and this can be uh, like european government right. or a uh, space agency or national government or maybe even local uh, government so that's a, there's a huge difference between uh, europe and the states in that uh, so we started classically um, with this money uh, the problem uh, in europe is that oftentimes uh, the conditions or requirements for these grants are very low so there's a lot of people who made these grants their business model (laughs) so the grant ends the project ends you go to the next grant that's great you know you have a decent salary you have a nice company but it doesn't make you going anywhere no it doesn't so the i think the technical term is rent seeker 
So it doesn't produce any economically viable uh, uh, product. So we were there, but then we had the explicit mission. Okay, we want to, you know, intelligence exists for the private market. So we only do 100% of our sales effort goes to uh, the private sector. And we do we do get uh, grants, but that's all passive acquisition, like it comes anyway. Um, so this is the classic model. And we were going uh, along fine until suddenly people start calling you. <laughs> they say, hey, Arjen. This is uh, this is Pete from uh, blah 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 impact blah 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 uh, investment uh, uh, disruptors uh, game changer uh, Inc. I said, okay, how are you doing? Why are you calling me? Why would we be interesting? And this is like how I see myself. Why would anyone be interested in me? And then I also, why would they be interested in in our uh, company? So, oh yeah, no, this and that, and then. Maybe this is a nice example also of the way I think. So first I think, why would they be interested in me or in our company? But on the other hand, I'm super curious, like, whoa, a new field. <laughs> Let's see what they actually do. So you invite them over, you have a nice chat. You think these are actually really nice people. They don't look like uh, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, right? <laughs> so also slight disappointment. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so and then so that that's the first of these are also uh, nice people and they just have a you know they have a mission and a job and they do acquisition and then you notice something called due diligence like before I thought this whole investment game was like a crystal ball mythical like uh, wizard that would handpick uh, unicorns but it's not like that at all like there's a very thorough pseudo-scientific uh, uh, selection method it's at least so to get at least uh, rid of the crap and then we thought okay that's interesting and um, so that's what you learn but then uh, uh, in addition to that uh, I learned that investors uh, so they don't only bring a bag of money that's okay. nice but that's actually uh, yeah well only small part of it there's also other things that they bring one of it is uh, experience and coaching so they i mean this is what they do so they have a lot of companies like you in their portfolio so you can learn a lot about general uh, company building things so that's really nice and the other thing is uh the message to the market because why would why would a big bank uh, get involved with uh, 20 idiots in an uh, office in utrecht super high risk but if you're backed by an investor the bank it's a signal to the bank that at least someone did due diligence right. and that's you know that's like a hidden message to the market oh those guys have a that have an investor and the banks know or the the the, the prospect know that, that that the investor is not a wizard they did some due diligence so it gives you a kind of stamp of credibility so that's one thing. The other thing is that um, once you're less likely to disappear, to go bankrupt. Right. So these these are all things that we learned. And then uh, apart from that, we got like our current investor. Uh, they're really nice people and we really got a good uh, connection with them. So we decided uh, to go ahead and that, that's how we picked up uh, our first round of uh, uh, funding. So what were the, were, were there any downsides to doing that? Cause like one of the, 
I think if I oversimplify it, you hear this where, you know, the mission gets derailed by yeah. what investors want. Like, is that a concern? Yeah, this, so this uh, the, may be another thing I didn't touch upon uh, yet. Like there is no, there's no such thing as the investor. There's many kinds of investors. That's what I learned. So we're, you can have the typical, uh, let's say, uh, Silicon Valley hawk type who only look at the financials and they will push you hard, hard, hard to get multiples uh, every year. So mm -hmm. if, you don't, if you don't double uh, the revenue every year, you're just out of the game. They will put a new CEO in, they put pressure. This on the one extreme and then on the other extreme, let's put the, let's say the, EU, the EU grants or too lean. <laughs> and then in between there's, there's, there's everything. And then I'm surprised by the, not surprised, but like in our case, the, the investors, it's more that they are like, uh, uh, coaching and suggestion, su suggesting, right. Okay. But it's not like they don't put a lot of pressure on you should do this. But like, is that, do you, but there is like, but if you, but it could be that you meet the wrong investor. Right. Right. And then, then you, then yeah, things can go wrong. I can totally see that <laughs> happening mm -hmm. like your friends. And this is also like, uh, I don't know. Um, you know who your friends are, uh, in bad times, right? So if all the graphs go up, any investor is happy and easy to work with. Right. What what do you do if uh, yeah, you get into dire straits? Like, that's that's easy when like everything's yeah. going well. Yes. But like we were talking about the horizon time timeline. Like, is that something that you looked for where you want people yeah. who are seeing things on the same horizon as you are? Yeah. So one of the things uh, that 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 the biggest doubt we had uh, Niels and I about investment is uh, this thing called exit strategy. Yeah. People thought, what's your exit strategy? And we would look at them. What are you talking about? We never thought about this. We just, we, I work at Satellis and Niels as well because we enjoy working <laughs> <laughs> with each other and also with remote sensing and people, we don't think about, oh, in seven years we want to sell the company because then never zero uh, seconds, uh, thought but then you get investors and 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 eh? so we ask investors what's your exit strategy because uh, the world doesn't have an exit strategy right we are for zero deforestation there's no exit strategy for the world we don't have it uh, but then they are actually quite uh, nuanced and also you learn that in the exit strategies there's there's not just one thing like an ipo or a, a buyout uh, there's other options uh, as well, but this this is a big uh, consideration, and this is where things can heat up, like, and 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 I do I think for most investors the timeline is between five to seven years, right, which is okay-ish. You would, yeah, maybe ten to fifteen years would be nicer, but then yeah, they they also have their own uh, world of. You know that's how things go right so yeah so what are some of those other exit like because that is something I've, I've wondered like quite naively you hear about these things you're like okay so you invest there's like these c these stages a b c all that and then there's exit and then it feels like you know you roll the credits and it's done 
and you move on to the next but it feels like wait like how what about them you know the mission that you're trying to do so can you yeah, so imagine so one possible thing could be that uh, so the classic thing is you have a, an ipo so you sell all your uh, shares and then you get rich or uh, not rich because uh, the market crashes <laughs> that's something yeah like oh we did a, a 10 million ipo and then one day later uh, it's worth 5 million and then 2 million so never never get paid in uh, in shares always uh, ask for cash uh, but uh, so there's one thing another uh, thing could be uh, a buyout or a takeover right like uh vendor set yeah acquired uh, by a planet recently, yeah right so they got partly paid in cash and partly in uh, shares right there's a reason for that but uh uh, so that that could be the the, the takeover. Maybe funny story. Uh, uh, so I was in the car with Niels, and uh, we were just chit chatting uh, on the highway. And uh, I don't know if Niels brought it up or I. And we said, "What would we do if Planet would like want right. to buy us?" And we were just we didn't know. And the, our biggest concern would be culture. Right. You know, we are unique. <laughs> just like everyone else and what would happen if all these american sharks buy you and do stuff and then one week later the news broke Vandersat uh, got acquired by planet they're also dutch right yeah right. and and we know the guys very suspicious super nice uh, uh, guys and we, we we've been talking you just informally you know everybody knows each other yeah in, I mean, it's a small country, so, right? and then it suddenly like the week before in the car we discussed it as a like a hypothetical things like this will never happen and then one week later they got acquired and then it becomes super like okay it can happen right so do you know like did you come up with uh or do you feel like comfortable about talking about it or something or i'm yeah no sure but uh, i but this is the, the wrong question uh, right i feel comfortable talking about it <laughs> i mean that's the thing like i'm gonna ask like a bill you know a bunch of questions so yeah. you set the limit to where you want things exactly to no 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 that's fine and and or you want to know uh, like what what our answer was to yeah. like if we then yeah so if we talk about these things or i at least like there's a few scenarios and yeah? there's not like the in the easy to think about these things also for yourself this is one of the patterns maybe that i apply so yeah. you said okay let's 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 polarize the problem Right, so okay, there's this big corp, and they're gonna acquire uh, intelligence. Then uh, scenario number one, they're gonna offer a hundred million dollars. Immediately so, yeah. If they're idiots that <laughs> don't, yeah, <laughs> don't get in the way if people are uh, running their uh, idiot plans. <laughs> so they have a big pile of cash, you might as well. So they, yeah, take the cash start another company with the cash uh, hire all your colleagues back <laughs> and have fun oh but you can't legally do that hey you've got 50 million you can buy a, a lawyer <laughs> so that's that's one scenario the other scenario is they say so, oh uh, we have a uh, hundred thousand dollars so these are like <laughs> yeah. that it, the point being it can be too high or too low and that's easy like you don't yeah. do it and then you get into this region yeah. where it's like okay this is a good offer um and then then the other stuff comes like what do you want and then and then we didn't we didn't have a like we there was no conclusion yeah, yeah, from yeah, our yeah. conversation right. but one the biggest concern i can say was that that we had was uh, culture 
I want to go there. I want to go on the culture because like we, we did touch upon that. Like I still think like it was a lot of fun to work here. And like just every time I come back, it's like, it's a lot of fun. And I know that you guys get a lot of stuff done as well. Like how, how do you build that company culture? Also because like you're the boss. So you kind of set the tone. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I very, very consciously uh, uh, thought about a company culture. And this is also something that um, I advise anyone early in their career to switch a few times. Mates. I think you also saw it, right? You yeah. work with us, you work with uh, ISI, you work with Overstory now. Uh, regard, I think you also had fun in every company. Yeah, but uh, it, it is like night and day exactly so there's then you learn to see pros and cons and and maybe and it's and also that it's you know it can be the wrong time you can be in the wrong team or in the perfect team it can be you as a human personality maybe at some point you have kids and like there's a lot of factors but then you learn that that there's no like golden solution uh for everyone forever so that so this is a nice thing uh, uh to see so I thought, okay, if I'm gonna uh, be uh, the boss or one of the directors of a company, at least I want to have fun, right? That's the least <laughs> I can do. And then uh, working working uh, in other companies before, there was like, I got a lot of feedback. We are in Holland, so we like to talk. So we do very, also, you know, we are very direct. So we are not afraid to give negative feedback or direct feedback. So we do a lot of that in work settings. And then mostly, like consistently, I got positive feedback. Like people enjoy working with me. I don't know why. Well, I do know, but you know. Why? I think because I bring a mix of like, uh, I'm not stupid. Uh, you can count on me. Like, if if you ask me to do something, I will do it. Uh, the quality will always be, uh, I say, a six. So uh, it will be good enough. Uh, I like I say, I'm I'm not the best in anything. If you're looking for the best, don't pick me. But in most things, I'm I'm better than most people, right? So. Maybe someone is a is a is a nine or an eight, uh, but I'm a consistently six point five in everything. So I beat you always at some point. Right. So that that's a, that's my strength. That range, right? Yeah. The range book. Oh, it's about me. But you thought the same, and you're different than me. It's like <laughs> horoscopes. <laughs> anyway. That's the book so, by uh, David yeah, Epstein, right? Yeah. So the, and, and I think so. This is part, and then because I don't think uh, uh, life very seriously, and not myself. So there's like one big. If you're in an office with me, it's a theater, uh, eight hours a day, <laughs> right? When I enter the room, it just yeah. starts. Is that why people are still remote? Do you think? Uh, Sorry. Is that why half the team is still remote? Or? Yeah, hundred percent sure. Yes. <laughs> They were very happy to do so. But and so that's why people like, so I have a pretty decent idea of how a fun working environment looked like. Yeah. Because if you only make jokes and stuff, then you become a clown and people, yeah. So there, there should be the balance. So you should yeah. bring some uh, value. Um, and then I think also the, the way my knowledge is on one end, very abstract and broad, uh, but also very detailed. Like I know Linux and you get stuck and they say, oh, try this and this. And then and that that 
you know, brings respect and people think, oh, he can actually do stuff. So I brought these things and we started the company and then I thought, okay, uh, one thing is just be yourself, like myself. And it's also easy because it's the only thing I can do. <laughs> so it's not that I have a choice. But the other thing is also like uh, team building is also about like lunch is much more important for your culture than uh, your strategy day. Yeah. So what I did was, okay, we're going to have stand-up. So we do the basic agile uh, scrum uh, thing. We're going to have stand-up at 12.15 every day for 15 minutes, which means everybody is finished at 12.30. So everybody's ready for lunch. Everybody starts eating lunch at the same time. And this is super important and maybe people missed it, uh, but very conscious because before I worked at companies and then lunches between 11.30 and 1.30, right? So the early birds, oh, I have a meeting at one, so they go yeah. early and then there's other people come, they, oh, let me finish this. And so people come in scattered and then there's half overlaps and that's not how you build this. There's, there's the, lone, the lone wolf eh, eating the last uh, sandwich in the canteen. You want everybody together. Uh, so this is one of thing, uh, thing like a simple thing, uh, which has a huge impact. So everybody eats lunch every day together. And that's how you build uh, uh, culture. And then after a while, uh, after a while, you get the culture and you can't get rid of it. So <laughs> this is something I learned in uh, actually the second company I worked. So we were working there. It was a education tech uh, company. And uh, there were a lot of people from education. Also a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, senior people uh, in age. And uh, they, they, they used to work in education. And in education in Holland, you're like, uh, your day finishes at, at 2 or 3. So a lot of those people would be gone around 3 or 4 in the afternoon. They were productive. But then the technical people would be in an empty building. Right. After 4, it would be empty. And this, like, there was a mismatch in ambition or uh yeah how people like you're you're working on this deadline uh, okay let's finish it and then your colleague just say oh i go home <laughs> you know there's a mismatch there so there was this group of people mostly younger people that wanted to like change something and see how we yeah, how we can get everybody on board because there was there was uh there were enough like five to ten people who were willing uh, to change but then one of the more senior guys sat with us in one of these uh, pizza voluntarily gatherings and he said every company gets the culture it deserves and once you have the culture it deserves it's super hard to change even if you want so this is something i uh, i remembered uh, i remembered when uh, starting uh, or start joining uh, uh, your own company that uh, if you want a culture you should start early and uh, the golden thing, be consistent. Right. That's why strategy days don't work. It's fun. You hang out and, you know, but then the next day, oh yeah, we should be smart, you know, S-M-A-R-T. Everybody agrees. One day later, nobody's smart anymore. <laughs> it's like going on a diet. It's like... Exactly, exactly. So... That's how you build company culture by, by small things and, and, and first and foremost, be consistent and coherent. So the last two years have been pretty fun. 
how do you handle like how have you handled like covid and just going remote you guys have like multiple offices now yeah you got people all around the world not even on the same time zone how do you how do you handle that yeah so the thing is that uh, the transition uh, to remote only went super smooth for us and this is exactly because of the reasons that you just stated before covid we already had remote offices we were already used to doing stand-ups with yeah. one, one guy remote and all this. So all the infrastructure and all the, uh, uh, well, tooling was already uh, focused on, was not like not depending on people being physically together. But, I'm but like, we didn't realize that until COVID came. Yeah. And then actually, people start asking oh how do you do this and how did the transition go and then we actually i thought actually we didn't have any problems like it went right. super smooth uh, and then i started to realize there were a lot of companies that had these like hidden dependencies and had especially in uh, like traditional fields like uh, legal they have no idea what to do at home <laughs> and also the lack of trust right maybe this is something that i'm i'm super naive uh, like I said, I believe everybody is good, but it never once uh, crossed my mind. And I'm also sure uh, all the team leads and the people like there's a super high level of trust within our company. But it's not like we take it. We didn't like I don't have a trust program. It's just. There. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. But you were talking about like the lunch being a really important moment. Uh because yeah. it is like to, to, to set a big context, like there's this really big table where everybody, I don't know still if everybody can fit, but like at least when I was there, like yeah. everybody can fit and it's just like a really big table and there's no, like just people sit and eat. How do you like, because you, you can't really do that anymore. No. And like people don't really want to have lunch in front of their computer either, I guess. Yeah. So how did you like specifically for that? did you find like something else that worked or yeah yeah so this was the, the my personal biggest concern and and also i think where we failed most uh these are the things that are almost irreplaceable yeah um so functionally the transition was like super smooth mm -hmm. uh, like every got everything got much more efficient i never saw like maybe people don't remember but pre-covid meetings would start between uh, 5, 2 and 10 past, right, of the, the intended start. In, 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 in COVID time, since COVID, every meeting starts exactly at the moment. And maybe someone is one minute late because yeah. their camera doesn't work or whatever. But it, it, so it becomes super uh, efficient and functional, but also very sterile, right? And this is the thing. So we did a few experiments so we had uh, online games right but then yeah it becomes a bit of uh, like organized fun is <laughs> <laughs> not uh, like politeness from a book okay. yeah right yeah, yeah you, indeed um but so these are the things that worked a bit but yeah I think one of the things that this in the in, in, in the chat groups there's a social chat and memes going on but it's it's not the same and, uh, and, and, and we did like, we have coffee chats, which yeah. is like people sign up and then, uh, there's someone assigning people right. randomly where you, but then still it's like planned spontaneity or spontaneity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. 
so that that's the most difficult thing but then yeah the basis where we're coming from was luckily good enough uh, for people to still keep the culture somehow uh, but yeah this this one of the unsolved things to me so this and right. this is also for me the biggest barrier or yeah i would say to like these companies like gitlab that are remote first or remote only mm-hmm then this stuff and then you see them oh we have great gaming night and i see the most the saddest picture of you know this screenshot carousel with yeah. people with plastic smiles or oh that's how i perceive it yeah, and then, yeah. It, there, there's no sadder picture uh, and i'm sure they have fun they're nerds but you know yeah but it's also <laughs> not for everybody right like yeah. lunch is for everybody yeah it's uh-huh. so, so we pre-COVID we had game night you were there and then uh, that's pretty I still yeah. remember that's also uh, yeah but that so, was in person yeah that, that was wasn't person. no but I'm I'm just just now starting to analyze like we did a game you never did the game but you immediately won Splendor yeah and then I saw the approach that you have yeah you was also like a super nerd immediately start analyzing the mechanics and optimize resource optimization so without ever playing it said this must be the most optimal strategy (laughs) and I'm a much more romantic like I get into the theme and think oh this and I and then and then I got beaten by this like uh, this evil opinionless (laughs) person yeah that was that was fun Yeah. I want to move on to like, so we've set the tone about like how the, the culture goes and how do you hire people? Like, how do you build that team? Like you, you say you have that, um, culture set in very early and yeah. then the company grows, you bring in people when some people leave and things like that. And yeah. How do you hire, how, how, how have you built the team that, that you have right now? Yeah, that's that's so. This is indeed uh, part of it. Then, if you look at uh, if you look at the company now, and the people say, "Whoa, all these people who are like this great fit together," yeah. and see that survivor bias. <laughs> okay, so you get a bunch of people in, and you kind of see who sticks. Basically, right? It's not true because the survivor bias is also in the interview process. So you get. 40 letters in and then we have a process of we select uh, the best letters or that we think fit best uh, with multiple people yeah and then we have I don't know between five and ten candidates we do a first round uh, which is very informal like we are talking now about anything uh, then we select uh, uh, the promising candidates and we ask them to do a, a practical assignment assessment you did it for your so we also do this for interns and it's not a test that you can pass or fill it's just the way we we want you to see how how do you approach problems how do you uh, document your assumptions uh, how do you deal with like un, sometimes we put unsolvable yeah. paradoxes in there um so that gives a pretty good insight and also um like some people are for, like you are uh, very expressive and comfortably uh, uh to communicate verbally some people are not like that and they are much more expressive uh, written so you don't want to uh, bias one over the other uh, and then there's, there's a second interview and mostly you talk about uh, the assessment 
and then uh, usually then you talk to four different people of the company like two in the first interview to two other people in the second interview right. and then after the second interview we do uh, like everyone writes their top three candidates on the paper and then we show the paper to each other right and then mostly uh, it aligns like okay. so this is the selection process but then this is also like how you this is how you create bias eh? because of course if you i i like the person i'm working with a person that i like working with and, yeah. they, and they like working with me so both probably we like uh, the yeah. same kind of uh, person uh, so that's probably why there is there is a bias in our selection process and i don't think maybe semantic stretching so innovation innovation is a very positive connotation but a bias has a very negative connotation think about it <laughs> so you were going to say you don't think it's a bad thing i don't know this is like the first yeah. time i think about the word bias why does it have i now realize it has a negative connotation yeah. but does it i don't see any reason why i think there's also uh, there can be positive stuff in it, like from an evolutionary perspective. It's very useful in a exactly. way to have yeah. like a made-up yeah. opinion on something. And then maybe in this case, if you have your company culture, if you would have a completely unbiased selection process, there would certainly uh, right. be people that would be like no fit for your company. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah, I feel like a, a lot of things that come from biases, like not trying to remove them but being aware of them like yeah absolutely and yeah. and then like as you said like if, if you were to remove it completely like i don't know if that would work in the end uh, yeah it's a lot of these things also stereotypes so your yeah yeah exactly Dutch, and then most stereotypes are true they have a basis yeah and then right. it's just be aware of it and don't let it let it don't let it limit or block your view right right be prepared to be uh, uh disproven so that that's i think also one of my basic approaches you have these categories and stuff but realize the map is not the territory and the map is very useful uh, but that's don't turn it around right i wanted to ask this question like i wanted to ask why did you hire me when i applied for the internship and i i want to explain why because like i think i would have really liked to hear that like early on it's kind of okay to like change fields and go for something else and i had enormous imposter syndrome because i was like as, as we touched on i studied aerospace mechanical engineering nothing about like yeah. remote sensing or programming or whatever and i just took some courses and did a bunch of stuff and yeah i think i was like really stressed on on those interviews and it like as far as I can tell, it went pretty well. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to hear your your perspective on that. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's a very good question, and also the way like we're talking about patterns. So this is also when uh, when I interview people for uh, so you hire for talent, not for skills. That that that's where it comes down to, especially with. For internships, right. you, you look more at uh, attitude, commitment, uh, enthusiasm, uh, than for, you know, if they can. If you, you no no intern has ten years of programming experience, right? So, <laughs> the, 
it's a no-go. And also from interns, we want them, like we treat them like normal employees. You, you just, we, you do, you are treated exactly the same as uh, all employees, but we don't expect anything from you in the positive sense right. of the word. Like the company's success doesn't uh, depend on you. And, and, and in the post, if you contribute stuff, that's great. But if it's a complete failure, uh, or like not what we expected, that's also fine. Uh, as long as you had fun and you learn a lot, uh, that will be fine. So that's how we approach right. interns. But then as interns, you even more look at like, uh, uh talent commitments and, um, enthusiasm than then skill that would be more like if you're looking if you have a if there would be a list of tasks that you want solved you just you hire a temporary student and say okay here's this amount per hour please fix this right um and then why we sele selected you so first we we don't we are still relatively small about 25 people so we can't have 10 interns at the same time yeah there will be a big too big uh cost on the rest of the company so we we have two to three intern positions in the technical teams mm -hmm. uh, at the same time and so you wrote an application and the, first of all uh the form was really nice so i'm a, a romantic and person and i'm very sensitive to uh to form <laughs> like if something looks nice or you put an effort and then right. you put this blueprint of a rocket so i think everybody can uh testify that uh, so i received this thing so before even replying to you i showed this thing to everybody in my direct 10 meter circle <laughs> so, look at this this is great and whoa so that that's that's number one so then we have an interview and then basically it's well i'm also so you're when you're interviewing people um i'm not looking for points to uh turn people down or dismiss people but look look for their talent like what where do they shine where, eh? where when does the smile come to their face uh, where, where's their talent and there might be a hidden talent and try to to see how that talent uh, can contribute to the team or to the company that's also with job openings so you put out a job opening with this bullet points list of a person that doesn't exist <laughs> Yeah, that's where the imposter syndrome comes from because of bullshit job openings. And then uh, you do interviews and then maybe sometimes you find a person that you think this is a great person, but it's actually not, you know, quite what we were looking for. But then you hire them and then after you hire a person, you, you start looking where is the best fit for this person within the company, which might be something completely different from the original uh, opening. And, and this is basically also uh, what we do with uh, with interns like uh, Niklas, uh, the German guy. He started doing soy classification. He ended up uh, reprogramming uh, a dynamic time warping module in our classification uh, uh, software package, right? And he deeply enjoyed it. And uh, for you as well, so there's this guy uh, who does aerospace engineering. Then already applying to us, you get bonus points for stepping out of your comfort zone. Right. <laughs> or for me personally then we do the interviews I, I remember we had the assessment and then uh, you were still lost in the Microsoft world <laughs> let's have a moment of silence <laughs> yeah I think uh, there was like 
five back and forth emails on how do you get Docker yeah. to work on and Windows. And the thing is that I'm super, I want to help everybody. And I felt deep sympathy because we had this assessment horrible. with like, usually if you do Python programming, the dependency management is hell. So we yeah. thought, oh, let's help people. Let's make a <laughs> Docker where the whole environment is available. So they don't have to worry about that. Then the Docker becomes the problem, <laughs> right, Max? And then the, the problem is you're on Windows, which I didn't use for 20 years right. for a reason. And uh, you come with these questions that I have, I can't debug. Like I can only guess. Luckily at that time we had our friend Dimitri, yeah. who was uh, more but enlightened, I must say, than me, because <laughs> he's from a world where there's no, where there's no Windows Linux. Uh, fight anymore like it completely disappeared yeah there's the days of uh, of the other steve another anecdote steve jobs is like this mythical like whoa guru and half godlike person and then i wrote somewhere that the other steve like uh, the microsoft steve uh, his last name uh, slipped my mind there uh, steve balmer do you know him no, I think maybe the name, not. But like the name, he was the CEO. I think after uh, Bill Gates, but okay. Bill Gates was still on. And right. Steve Ballmer was like personified capitalism, and he was right. I think that's to yeah. this super charismatic uh, uh, meetings for developers, 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 <laughs> developers, sweating like a pig, and then he after literally that. called Linux a cancer. So he saw it as the, oh, wow. the enemy. Okay. Now Microsoft is the biggest contributor to uh, the Linux Linux kernel yeah. because of cloud Azure they needed. So this this completely changed. But what I was hinting at, so there's this godlike image of Steve Jobs. But then I read somewhere, pick any business metric, right? Revenue, number of people, uh, sales, and Steve Ballmer scores better <laughs> than Steve Jobs. Right. But the, he doesn't have this image at all. Like he has a very bad image. So this is also something like we create uh, our gods. Wasn't there's like, I don't know, in the, in the, in the geospatial Twitter, like we don't have these things in the geospatial yeah. uh, space, like uh, these icons. I, I, yeah, that's the thing I'm like surprised by. Yeah. I think that's also why I really like the, this geospatial company. It's very equalitarian and uh, people are approachable and yeah uh, they're very respectful like the few like we do have the icons but they are very humble and uh, approachable and uh, not pretentious uh, for example paul ramsey frank wermer right. okay people like that yeah um how did we get here the docker docker yes so and it, so i'm i'm from the steve Ballmer. <laughs> Uh, and then Linux was like, uh, you're on the good side. Uh, but then you were, uh, and then you made all this effort and then I thought, okay, this is a guy who's committed and maybe a bit too committed, yeah, you know, the rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it showed in your internship as well. <laughs> then, uh, oh, maybe we can try this <laughs> two months later. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't really changed much, by the no. way. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so this is, uh, yeah, that's that's why we uh, uh, hired uh, would seem a, a bit a bit uh, selected uh, you. Yeah, and it worked out fine, didn't it? Yeah, right. right. Yeah. I'm yeah. still like, what I, I wanted to 
mention on that because I, I am really grateful for that because it is what got me to, like the, the, the foot in the door. Like it feels like forever ago now that yeah, it I does take also all. because of this 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 uh, abyss of COVID is in between. It's a yeah, divide, eh? Exactly. It feels yeah, like yeah. a divide in time, the pre and post. Yeah. But I think like I I hope that like stories like this help like people take a shot at stuff. Yeah. That like because I felt like, whoa, this was the, the, the weirdest thing ever to like change fields like that and go in something else. But as I'm having these conversations, I'm realizing that it's actually everybody's stories like that. Everybody's changed a billion times and doesn't know what the heck they're doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we also had this intern uh, before you, uh, Yip, and she was uh, like a super talented, smart uh, girl. And she started working for us. Uh, as an intern and uh, I think she enjoyed but with us she found that uh, programming is not for her mm. she was good at it but but she found like I, I don't really want to do this so she went for a consultancy right. uh, kind of job so that that's what you do uh, yeah. during internships so back to the exploring a lot yeah early on yeah and don't be afraid to, to fail that's also like I the imposter syndrome, I think everybody can resonate with that. But the first time I read it, like, okay, okay, that's uh, like, I have that a lot. But yeah, it's like, yeah, myself, the way I think about myself is like, I don't have a very high esteem of, of myself. But then the, okay. res the yeah, no. And, and the, the result is that I'm like, there's nothing to lose. Like you would say that I get insecure, but it's the opposite. I get confident because I think, who cares? Like I'm at zero. Right, what, right. What, what's the worst thing that can happen? I can't sink any further, so why not try? <laughs> and and the Got paradox it. is that often you get like positive feedback for trying, yeah. and then that's how you build up confidence without realizing. Right. So the starting point of a lot of people who, who, who look confident, maybe that's not like, it's not uh what's it called a genetic thing or something it's like like in my case it's not from that i come from uh a confidence energy place or something so in my case it was from just a lack of self-esteem as yeah who cares like nothing <laughs> what's the worst thing that can happen mm. i wanted to touch on like open source a bit uh we talked about linux but one of the things, like for me, it was just like working at Intelligence, where I realized that, oh my God, you can build like a whole company based on open source stuff. Uh, like, I think most of the tech when I was there, I don't know now, but was running Linux. We were using QGIS and like just everything Python and like just everything's built on 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 open source why like that's not the case in every industry like yeah. there's a bunch of other stuff where you know it's like everything is on microsoft and it's just proprietary software and people yeah. get job done do you have any idea why this field is like so prominent on on geospatial and i'm, I'm let's say on the like remote sensing because then there's like the whole ArcGIS, but that's more on you know the gis yeah. stuff it's just i think quite different yeah uh, I have no idea, but I can give uh, another anecdote of how we uh, got to uh, open source. Yeah. So I was working for this company, uh, Sarvision, the first company I worked for, uh, who was 
like my boss was my uh, thesis supervisor and he had this company on the side. And at that time, uh, the field, the technical field was very much dominated by uh, licensed proprietary software. So let's say uh, for the uh, engineering people, there's uh, MATLAB. Yeah. So we didn't use MATLAB, just as an example. And there was ESRI on the GIS side. And then we used a program called uh, ENVI, I think. Yeah, Okay. ENVI. Uh, and they had this uh, programming language called IDL. Uh, integrated data language or something and, uh, and then we had uh, a floating license in the company <laughs> so we paid and then I don't know 10, 20, 30,000 like these crazy expensive licenses to be able to use uh, this programming language and the language was optimized for uh, remote sensing so super easy to open stuff right. uh, you know process your stuff and then um, there's actually two reasons why we were moving to uh, to open source. And one of the things being is that, uh, so I was working with Vincent, who still works uh, with us now. Like we started at the same day and uh, we were working on, uh, on uh, Windows computers, which was fine. Um, with the, like a one gigabyte hard disks and uh, this is a long time ago. And then Vincent said, my roommate uh, is using Linux. <laughs> and this sounded like this obscure, <laughs> high tech, tech bro stuff before tech bro was a thing. And then uh, is that uh, I tried it and uh, I got this micro optimization for this and this. And we were like, we're shit. <laughs> so I thought, I also need that. So I got this huge box of SUSE with eight CDs <laughs> with Linux on it. So that's how we got into Linux. Right. And at that time, Linux was like not user friendly at all. So can you, by the way, when is at that time? Like just, when are we talking about? This is in uh, 2002. Okay. So this is uh, when I started working for uh, Surfvision. Um, so we started using Linux because it was more memory efficient so, and we could process uh, bigger uh, files bigger satellite images and IDL happened to run on uh, Linux, the, the programming language, uh, everything going fine. We built our own uh, uh, software and our uh, client at the time was uh, an Indonesian NGO uh, based in, in Indonesia. And this was before the cloud, right? The cloud didn't exist. There was internet, but you used it to send email and uh, read spam. Um, and at that time, the uh, so in the I worked in the tropical land use, and at that time, uh, the term knowledge transfer was like super popular. And if you didn't do that, you would be neo-colonialist. Nowadays, uh, knowledge transfer is considered itself to be a neo-colonialist <laughs> term, so you can't use that term anymore. But anyway, at that time, there was knowledge transfer, so uh, you weren't supposed to run. Uh, the algorithms on your desktop computer in uh, the Netherlands uh, it should be run in a local computing center in Indonesia. So we flew there, uh, brought the computer, installed everything and started running. But then there's IDL who requires a license and there's just within that project or client, they don't have uh, the budget to pay for that license. So we had to find an alternative. 
and then again Vincent <laughs> he found this thing uh, called uh, numeric and uh, there was the other thing uh, which now slipped my mind by uh, by Travis Oliphant like uh, this le level of uh, Paul Ramsey so he created right. uh, a numeric and numeray there was like two right. competing libraries for uh, numerical computing and then he found it and we could almost copy paste our IDL code to Python to this numeric and numeray code and it was free you didn't need a license so that's how I and Vincent got into uh, using Python and open source. We even donated to uh, Travis Olyphant. Like he wrote this book uh, about it and you could buy it. And that's how he financed his uh, work. Later, uh, Numeric and Numeray merged into NumPy, what is now NumPy. But you should realize there was like two competing APIs right. for the same thing. Very and it's, if you look at NumPy, sometimes you think, why is this like strange? That's right, the reason okay. is why it used to be two different libraries. Uh, so that's how we got into that. Um, and then slowly uh, the cloud was coming. And then the cloud de facto runs uh, on Linux and open source. And then I think you get into this domino or accelerating yeah. effect. Uh, but for geospatial, I think maybe also because of this uh, ESRI being the incumbent, uh, so they have a disadvantage uh, because they, they, they are big on desktop, so they focus on desktop yeah. while the rest of the world was taking over in the right lane uh, with the cloud. And then there was no like RGIS in the cloud. There was, they built it much later uh, after the party already started a, a long time ago. And then in the cloud, there were all these like super lightweight tooling libraries like uh, Google and Ogre and uh, Geos uh, and, and, and Postgres on the bigger stuff, SQLite, that were running the show. I so, think it took me like a few months to realize that Google and GDAL were the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> You're not like, I'm Dutch, so we say GDAL. Oh, God. GDAL. And uh, so me and Vincent and I would say, uh, did you, uh, so compiling GEDAL was like daily business because of course we wanted the latest stuff. This was way before we knew about versioning, deployment, all that stuff. So we right. found this, we found this Linux distribution called uh, Gen2. I'm, I right. don't know if you're familiar. I've heard about it. It's cool because it's super optimized because you compile everything on your hardware. So it's like right. 0.353% faster <laughs> than anything. So we need that. And you should realize if you used, I used KDE at the time. Right. So there's a bug fix for KDE. You had to recompile everything. So you were, we would like 20% of our uh, productive work, we were recompiling <laughs> packages <laughs> in Gen2. And this is, this is on our desktop computers. We also had a server in a data center right. and we ran Gen2 on that server together with, um, so at that time there were for serving maps in the cloud there was there was map server and geo server and map server was really good in uh let me think uh, yeah uh, roster but at that time we also needed a solution for vector and then this is maybe a thing you recognize from open source so you're working on this problem and then there's this like almost this problem that 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 like almost fixed and then some magic happens and someone released it either as a library 
or as a feature in the library. The only thing it's alpha bleeding edge, uh, blah, 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 <laughs> but you don't realize. So you just install, it works and go, go on. So there was this GeoServer thing coming from uh, Italian guys. And Vincent said, oh, it's GeoServer, let's install it. So he <laughs> installed it on the, on, the, uh, on the web server on Gen 2 and everything worked fine. But then we, got, we found that our server, uh, it worked perfectly, but then it got slower and slower and slower. And then in hindsight, now I think, okay, memory leak indeed. So after a while, we couldn't even SSH into the server anymore. Wow. So we had to drive by car to Amsterdam to the data center to physically <laughs> enter the server and reinstall the thing. Vincent found the problem, reported it to the Geo server guys, and they fixed it. They said, thank you. But then, so this was uh, us uh, finding out why maybe alpha bleeding edge version is not such a good idea to run in a production server. Grandpa tells. And this is the stuff like I never in my life, I never had a kind of mentor or a senior person that was right. uh, helping me. And that's how you feel about yourself all the time until you get like interns like Max and you're struggling with, I uh, and I can't run this. And then I look over your shoulder and you say, uh, uh, change mod uh, 777 uh, and then, oh, well, it works. <laughs> so yeah. I tell you and, and, and you get going in one minute. This took me one week <laughs> right. 20 years ago to find out. Yeah. That's why mentoring is pretty cool. I know, I know. So still looking for a mentor. So my mentor is failure. <laughs> that's a great, like that sticks though. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that thing that you found, I, I think like when you struggle, like when you put effort into finding something, I feel yeah. like it sticks more than if you go on Stack Overflow and it's that and you have to go back on it every single time because it doesn't stick there's benefit to it as well yes and i must say that but this is grandpa talking so the all the stuff that i described like these adventures with uh, uh and i'm very grateful to uh, vincent and that he's still a colleague like that was our mindset and it really forces you to understand how things work yeah uh so you learn you learn the hard way but then yeah so this also the person i am so i got this knowledge from like memory leaks in in geo-serving production systems uh, to like super abstract ideas and then combine all this stuff into patterns uh, and, and you apply them. So then I think I don't realize, I don't consider myself an overly technical person, uh, but now, okay. right, this is the imposter. And this is again, like I consider myself normal, like everybody knows this, but then now we're hiring for uh, COOs and uh, you would expect like, okay, technical person uh, and stuff. But then, then you realize, okay, they are great people and they, they are much more capable uh, than me at a lot of things. But the technical knowledge is like, I'm a bit disappointed. Right. <laughs> like, okay, I don't expect them to compile uh, Google uh, by hand, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I was gonna ask about that. Like that, that was like one of the questions I wanted to bring up as well is like, how important is that in like, especially like on the leadership side, that technical knowledge, not, not necessarily, you know, having to compile, I'll go for GDAL, but GDAL from scratch, but knowing like what it is even. Um, depends a bit on the, yeah, on the, 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 the type of team, uh, company, your role and position, 
So it's not, I can't give a conclusive answer on that, but it does help. And maybe also in like building the, uh, like I said, building a culture and respect is like in these small things that you, you show, you know, your you know what you're talking about, uh, about these like anecdotal uh, things, tales from the trenches. <laughs> right. So in that, that sense, it helps. And maybe it also helps in like, but I'm not sure if that's a condition but because it's mixed also with the way your brain works in assessing uh, problems and solutions. Like there's a problem, an opportunity. No, there's just a problem and it needs to be fixed. So there's a problem. You um, assess the problem. You think, oh, it's more or less this. And then immediately you see the opportunity or the solution spaces. Like there's avenues of, or directions of solutions that you might explore and then the more experience you get the more easy it become to dismiss like okay right. this family of solutions let's first explore this one uh, and apply these patterns uh, to find the solution so that's i think it, it greatly helps uh if you have been uh if you have been there at, at the lower uh, technical levels But I don't think it's a condition. It helps, but it's not like mandatory or material. Right. And the thing is, the, 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 the trick is more, it's not that you went to this specific thing, but I think it's that you, the trick is how well do you walk or climb? How well do you climb the ladder of abstraction? That's much more important. What do you mean by that? Can you expand a bit? Yeah, so this is one of my, uh, like, gods, Brad Victor. That's, uh, I think, one of the designers or whatever at Apple, who got very bitter about Apple. It's fun. And then he <laughs> writes these blog posts. One is called The Ladder of Abstraction, okay. which is, like, explaining a concept. And while explaining it, he has these uh, code snippets, uh, visualizing and highlighting uh, the problem and okay. it, it builds up step by step so these code snippets but also these are visual uh, 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 visual expressions so you see a car I don't know a car driving a road or something and it's just like on all levels so well and elegantly integrated so this is just the way he is and and works and this letter of abstraction is like there's a specific implementation uh, of a problem, but there's always, if you go one abstraction level higher, uh, then you have a more general pattern of solving a whole family of problems. Right. And then the higher you go, let's say you reach the top of the, if you would see it as a pyramid, the bigger the, the let's say the, the family of uh, problems that you can solve, but the less specific. So the way, the ability to navigate, to go up and down the ladder of abstraction, that uh, is what determines, let's say, or it really helps uh, if you're in a leadership position. So you recognize a specific implementation being this general uh, solution pattern, and then you can apply it. So then you go down the ladder again and apply it in this other seemingly unrelated space. Right. So that's the thing. It's like you should be able to abstract uh, the, the higher abstraction level from a specific uh, uh, problem or solution uh, to be able to be 
uh, yeah, to apply it to a wider set of problems and vice versa. Right, right. And, and knowing when to do that, uh, that, that's, yeah, I think that's a very helpful uh, skill. Do you think that's also like, and maybe to add yeah, to yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah, so it doesn't only, uh, <laughs> so this is one of the problems marketing is facing as well, or maybe just us, okay. right? So we are, we talked about this before. So we do, we, our mission is zero deforestation, but we just discussed that, that then we will be dead, right? If we only do deforestation, so that can't be it. Okay. So we climb the ladder up. So we, we do, and before before you know you're just in this like super abstract blob that like leaves all possibilities open so it's not wrong but then it's too vague so you say oh mm. we're an environmental monitoring company and then you feel very satisfied because you didn't leave out all the possibilities but then what is that environmental monitoring do you do air pollution i don't know noise pollution like all these possibilities are in there as well which you didn't intend so you went up too far. So it's not environmental monitoring that you right. do it. Okay. And then, so you go down again. And so the ladder of abstraction is not only in technical problems, but also right, in right. the semantics of language, which is, you know, what marketing does. I find this very prominent on when I, I go look at companies' websites. Yeah. I feel like there's, there are some, like you could swap them and I'm, nobody would notice. I don't know if you were here, but I got this uh, presentation. We have this lunch presentation concept at the company, mm -hmm. which we should revive, by the way. But then I did this. It was about uh, the zero to one gap was in there as well. And then I actually found this company. Uh, I like bike racing, like bicycling. Yeah. And then uh, the, the way the business model uh, with the professional teams is that uh, it's super like uh, unsustainable. They have sponsorships. So there's a team and there's a logo on your shirt and they like in France there's uh, AG Desert and they get sponsored by uh, Citroën. So they mm -hmm. have a Citroën logo, they pay their money, that's how it works. It's not very sustainable. But anyway, so I watch these bike races and then sometimes there's these logos of companies I never heard of. So there was this company called Splunk uh, by one of my uh, favorite uh, racers. And I looked it up on the internet and then the company, it, like they ticked all the boxes. Eh? It was like almost like a computer generated <laughs> site. And then, but if you look at what they did, like they claimed to do, I thought they do exactly the same thing as us. It was like disruptive data driven AI insights, you know? Yeah. And then I call this, this, this XKCD comic called adjective only food <laughs> and i felt like that like it's a lot of words about nothing it's absolutely nothing so that's that's i should write a blog post about this I, so when i read marketing stuff now i find one of the things the litmus test just leave out all the adjectives and adverbs and then you know what they're actually trying to say and often there's nothing left try it <laughs> there's nothing there's only adjectives and, and people do that because of this problem of the letters of abstraction. They don't know where to stop. Right. I think. And they, so they're too afraid to limit, to limit themselves too much. Yeah. And then what you get is this like amorphous blob and basically saying nothing and people feel satisfied, but it's because like 
I think people are afraid of being hurt. Like it should, like real good humor. If you make a joke, it always hurts someone. Otherwise, it's not a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> and and usually, then if you're, uh, it, it can also be the the, the joker. Uh, yeah. Uh, himself so self-mockery is one of the conditions uh. but it's it's fun that you say that like i thought about like how do i describe this podcast that i do i had to do like you you know you put a website and you have to have this like tagline yeah this yeah. like a, a thing that should hold in a tweet that's yeah. like basically yeah. like how would i how do you describe it and it's really hard because it is this thing where you want to put it, you want to put it narrow. You don't want to put it too narrow. Yeah. And I think part of it for me is, I think I've moved away a little bit, but it's like this fear of commitment Yeah. about like, if I say I do that, that means I can't do this. Yeah. But moving away from like it being a fear to it being like, I am going to do this and not that, but I'm going to do this like as good as I can. Yeah. And then it's not going to be like for everybody there's I, I really like how um daniel from the mapscaping podcast like we talk a lot and he's very vocal about you do this thing for a certain specific person it's not for everybody yeah but you do it as best as you can for that person yeah and i felt like narrowing things down and so i guess that would be going down a few layers of abstraction has helped me like forced yes to 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 be like this is what i'm doing yeah and then you can say like okay it's about this very general thing yeah but exactly. you, it's very clear about what yeah. it is for yeah yeah and this is exactly the way and I, I do think so it's uh minds behind maps right mm -hmm. it's your tagline i like it because the minds to me includes so i interpret first of all i can interpret it but it's specific enough to know have some idea and then the minds to me would be the human yeah right and the map and then this could be the the, the let's say the the issue of discussion like a map like oh but i remote sending is not really a map and then a vector but it's fine it's good enough to like hint at the geospatial community oh, okay fine uh, so i like i think it's good and it's about like choice is hell right yeah and and the thing is freedom is the illusion of choice like people want they say i want freedom that's yeah. not what they want yeah. they want they want the illusion of choice if people think they can choose they are happy the problem is the most horrible thing in the world to do is to choose think about your girlfriend uh, max right <laughs> it's the most beautiful wonderful girl but once you you know, you picked it. Oh, it's faded. Then it's not true. It's not destiny. You so you picked each other, and then there's this whole range of possibilities that's just not a possibility anymore. It's horrible. So, I think that's one of the big, scary things about life uh, is making choices. I think it's, I think it is scary. But on the other hand, I, I see it as a, um an illusion that it is like a mirage of yeah. like possibilities and it's like this um siren that's like singing to you like look at all the possibilities and yeah. look at how this could be and it is all in this like theoretical compared to what there is there and then it's, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about like counting the blessings yeah and 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 for like be it for for a job for relationships or even for this podcast it is about like it, it's actually very freeing to say no to be like 
this is not what I do. Yeah. And then I can focus on this thing and I can do this properly rather than trying to chase. I think that's, that's the thing I'm trying to do is like stop chasing everything. Yeah. And then do this. We're sitting down here. We're committing to doing this conversation. There's a bunch of other, there's a billion other things you could be doing right now at the same time. But then you do this hopefully properly. And I, I, I see that as very freeing rather than. Yes. And the rest is just illusion in a way. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. So it's about. Uh, so that if you make a choice, it's about the thing you're going to do or doing. And that's about um, acknowledging or uh, accepting the stuff you don't do. <laughs> so maybe that's it. Yeah. Like that's why people don't make choice because they don't want to accept the stuff they don't do. They want to keep it open. Yeah. But you end up doing nothing. Exactly. So that's the paradox I'm saying. So right. if you if you jump, if you jump into the abyss, right? Uh, the result is that you will feel truly uh, free by accepting like the yeah. you live by accepting loss. That's how you uh, yeah, get hold yeah. of things. But I, I do think like learning to say no has been something that I've I've tried to do more of. This might sound obvious, but like yeah. to also because there's so much things that like if you say yes, you're just open to whatever comes your way. Yeah. But that 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 has helped. Yes. Well, no, but yes. <laughs> yeah, and the Germans, I'm very bad at pronouncing this, but uh, in den Begrenzung zeigt sich den Meister. So in the limiting, uh, the master shows. Right. So it's not. Uh, there's another like I think a Dutch author writes. Uh, he, so he had a correspondence with uh, with another author, and then he said, uh, uh, "Sorry about this long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one." <laughs> I did really like. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to yeah like limit yourself, and uh, it's not like oh we do these hundred thousand things. That's that's not the problem. But to say oh okay, we do these three things, right? That's much more uh, difficult. I want to, there's one other topic I wanted to, to bring up. We talked about like maps quickly. I want to, one of the things that I think really piqued my interest when I was here and that I kept is like, you were very adamant about like maps are not the way we should, or not always the way we should tell the, the insights that we get from the data. Yeah. So if we go back to, to that aspect, can you explore that a little bit more, that idea? Like, first of all, did I get that right? And yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And it comes from, uh, so I also call this the, maybe I shouldn't say this, so the Silicon Valley perspective, uh, solutionism, reductionism, and then a lot of companies, and uh, this is very true for the remote sensing sector still, I think they, they talk about their company uh, well, they, let's say they advertise their company by talking about attributes of self. So do you have an example of that? Yeah. So they, uh, so you, you're a remote sensing company, a satellite remote sensing company. You go to the website and there's this, this, this picture of a satellite with this jumbo, uh, data driven insights from space, high resolution, uh, daily pass. Those are all attributes of satellites. Those don't fix customer problems. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the basic thing. 
We do it as well. It's super difficult. And a map is another expression of self because that's, that's the, let's say the mental model. That's the model how satellites view the world. Um, but it's not necessarily how your customer or your market uh, sees the world. Like we talk to people in financial institutions a lot. And then the paradox is uh, it's, it's super, it's even embarrassingly easy to get to the table. You think there's no objective reason they should talk to you. Like I said, 20 idiots from Utrecht. Like there's no, which, which policy, which company policy said that. <laughs> yeah, but, oh, space, remote sensing, come mm. in, have a seat, talk. Whoa, satellites. So you're at the table and what you do is because it's also uh i think strengthened so these people you think that they are interested in that uh so right then they see maps and you don't realize that uh they think they're on holiday because the only the only day uh, the only time they look at maps is during holiday right <laughs> those are banking people they they are used to look they, they look at graphs and tables and the, it's a really funny thing so i was literally we were watching maps of NDVI, I don't know, deforestation, they're looking at it and then, you know, these are smart people say, oh, like this. And then would it be possible to, uh, if it's too difficult, please tell me, but would it be possible uh, to, 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 to get this in the, in the table or a graph? And then, and then this, this is the person asking. Like 80% of the person don't ask because they think it's not possible. Yeah. It's something you and I don't realize but until they see a graph with deforestation going up, deforestation going down, and literally you show it to them and meaningful discussion starts because that's their visual language. That's how they communicate. So it's not that I say uh, using maps is wrong, is a wrong way to represent uh, remotely sensed uh, data. It's just uh, start with the customer. Uh, put yourself in their shoes. How do they work? What do, does their workflow look like? What are the visual tools that they are used to? Uh, uh, and try to express your solution in their visual uh, language. First, <laughs> if that is a map, by all means, <laughs> use maps. But maps is not the default best representation right. of satellite imaging. So that's that's the background. So it's also, and then it's maybe to get back to your saying no, like it's the easy part is to show a stack of maps and you see the satellite, start with the satellite picture and then build it up until a solution. But what if you would limit yourselves because you know, limits spark creativity. There's no, like if you have endless budget and endless time, nothing will come. So you need deadlines to make things happen and, and, and limited budgets. Uh, so why not say, you can't show maps. Show me, show me your solution without using maps. Mm. Just as an exercise, like as a, a design, right. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, design limit. So that that's the background uh, behind that. Also to challenge yourself that, like, are you just chasing? Like, do you just want to impress your audience with beautiful maps, or are you like committed to understanding their problem and 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 find a solution? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, 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 and, and, you know, the, in the end it's remote sensing and earth observation, super young, immature industry, full of nerds with their back to the market and the face to the satellite, very much like 
the law of eyes to the satellite and it's it's so great and all they do is describe uh, the iceberg uh, below water they are so like you did right. all this hard work and then the only thing maybe in our case like uh, deforestation now you have the eu regulations and basically it's compliance so can i import my palm oil yes or no so red or green so you could state that our app is super simple uh, you log on to the app you say your commodity uh, you say your company uh, you hit uh, enter and then there's a green or a red screen that's it behind the red screen there's like yeah. terabytes of data thousands of computing hours and you you're proud of your work so you want to show that iceberg to the customer mm. but the customer is not interested in the iceberg do you think that's where it would help to have like bring in like a designer that knows nothing about it like yes. bring in people in the company who don't know about the iceberg yes yes so the most uh, known and most widely used mapping library for vector is leaflet which was designed not by a person with a geospatial background uh, by a Artem, uh, the Ukrainian guy, Vladimir, is it? Yeah. yeah, also way too smart, like Brad Victor stuff. So you get, you see people like that, they say, why even bother? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's very humbling. Anyway, so, but I think he built it and, he, and I'm not sure what his background was, but certainly not geospatial. So he just built it. He didn't know about projections and all that stuff. And open layers is a typical thing, like that is built with a lot of theoretical a background and they build the whole thing every option is there and 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 leaflet is there like the bare metal thing it's like just enough uh, geospatial theory in there to make it work mm. and that's why it's so lightweight and that's why you get this different perspective uh on your field and i think that that also this will also happen to the uh, uh, geospatial company so we need and that's why like this thing of uh, the biggest issue is still, I think, access to data. Okay. <laughs> the, to me, oh, it's uh, free and open source. Oh, you wrote about it in your uh, in your mega thread uh, the other day. Like how difficult it is even to 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 download the Sentinel two uh, satellite image uh, for people who are you know, who are uh, cloud developers. So there's no technical limitations. Yeah? It's not that they don't know how to do this stuff, it's but just to download a satellite image is quite difficult. And this is the open source stuff. So let alone the whole opaque uh, sales agent juggling circus of the proprietary uh, 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 commercial satellite uh, companies. So if that becomes easier and then they don't have to worry about pre-processing, I don't think analysis ready data is like a marketing term, but it's right. not very practical. But then do people use remote sensing like they like if you could use Photoshop to process it, something like that, then you reach a much bigger audience and uh, you will get most of it will be failure. But because of yeah. the sheer numbers, this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, but yeah, one of the things that it's very niche now, remote sensing and even geospatial, it gets a bit bigger, like Google Maps 
and stuff like that. Navigation, people use that in their every, everyday life. So it becomes also more of a, of a not super rare skill for developers, but still, and especially remote sensing, it's super niche. I think the moment I like really realized how niche that is, is that even after having typed it like, I don't know, maybe a hundred times, my phone and my laptop still put like the red squiggly lines yeah. under the world geospatial. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, we're, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But do you, do you think it, we need more like open or, or is it okay that it's still just like really niche, just like, a you know, quantum computing, I don't know, whatever is super niche never, you know, needs to reach I'm just using whatever topic I'm thinking of, but there's a lot of topics that are really technical, really niche and kind of will always stay like that. Is that a problem? No, not at all. But uh, it's just like what, yeah, well, it depends a bit on your perspective because we got this, it's yeah, like we got these publicly funded programs, uh, satellites, so it's taxpayers' money. And then that would uh, advocate for uh, like a richer ecosystem of, uh, services and applications around that, or at least I feel like that. So in that sense, uh, and, and yeah, so there are efforts like government programs and also from the space agencies to, to, to advocate that, but still, yeah, it's like access and tooling. Those are the two like technical yeah. things that need to be solved and, or, and we're making progress, but also we should maybe not be too harsh on ourselves as a community because in the end we're just like super immature so i think it's going fine right. but and, and and maybe in a, in a bit wider perspective that it's that so like set maybe that will uh disappear like satellite uh, or lidar or whatever remote sensing uh, data as a specialism so to me the gap between your phone which is basically also a remote sensing device uh, and a satellite like the whole gap between those platforms will be filled in the future uh, on all dimensions. So uh, spatial resolution, radiometric resolution, uh, frequency. So there will be real-time data and information streams from all kinds of sensors all the time. Uh, so now we're climbing the ladder of yeah. abstraction again. And then if you, what are we as a company, a satelligent? So on the technical side, we do uh, satellite uh, data processing now and develop it into insights. Uh, this satellite part is temporary. Like this will be and is being replaced by uh, different types of satellite, but there will also be other platforms, uh, which we don't know uh, exactly now. Uh, there will also be like a feedback loops, like the IOT. Yeah, right. So, and this is all still like conceptually, it's I think theoretically pretty much like uh laid out and known but it's just we need uh volume and time and patience <laughs> to get to the true potential uh of those kinds of uh, technologies like yeah i think so so in that sense uh maybe the concept of a satellite will be abstracted there will be just uh yeah, maybe data even will become a utility. Like you need energy now. You just plug in your yeah. plug. You don't care how the how the, the the how the energy got into your phone. 
because it's standardized. You just plug it in and it works. I think it will be the same for a remote sensely kind of data. It will just be, you can plug into uh, APIs or something and right. just process it. And But this is all very speculative and basically <laughs> yeah. extrapolating uh, existing uh, paradigms. But it's fun to, to, to make a prediction and probably be wrong. Yeah, you're certainly wrong. That's, that's the... But then, yeah, I read that. So in the, the super forecasting, uh, like the, the, there's this misunderstanding. Uh, if there's a chance or a probability uh, of 20 or 80% of something to happen and you predict something will happen, like you say, okay, tomorrow it's going to rain and uh, there's an 80% uh, chance or probability. If it doesn't rain tomorrow, it doesn't mean you're wrong. The prediction is wrong because there was a 20% probability yeah. that it didn't rain. <laughs> and this, But this is to the, the larger audience, like, oh, the... The weather guy was wrong. Uh, no, he wasn't wrong. So the prediction, okay, maybe you didn't predict the exact fee, uh, future uh, uh, because right. you can't do that. But it's like, yeah, there is a probability. What we're doing is, uh, so what I said, there's these solution spaces or avenues of future progress. And what we are doing is assigning probabilities to these different avenues. And then we say, oh, we predict that, but we say, oh, this might have a 20% chance of happening as opposed to a 13% chance of that. Right, right. So I see it more in that ways. And then and then by definition, it's wrong. But it's like we're exploring how, how much is. weight do we yeah. put to the which probability and, <clears throat> and, and see if we can, uh, let's say, uh, minimize the effect of black swans, right? Yeah. You can't predict black swans, but you can, you be, you can prepare yourself for the impact uh, so I think like I like rounding the conversations off like asking for book or podcast recommendations. Like I feel like we've mentioned a lot. Do you have any books that you think are worth recommending like that people read? It could be about like anything that we talked about or like just any book like even fiction or something like that. Um, the reason I ask that is because like books and podcasts are, are like a lot of the recommendation goes through uh, word of mouth. Yeah. And I think they're also quite telling like how people think and what they're interested in. So is there anything that comes to mind? Yes, I know you yes, read a uh, lot. Uh, I read well. That Okay. Yes, I do actually uh, read a lot. So I, I, I'm just back from... Uh, from Japan, and then if you look at the weight ratio that books take <laughs> in my luggage, it's ridiculous. Uh, but uh, it's great, and I do. So I'm not a podcast person. Somehow it doesn't. I can't do it. Like there's a lot of like books. There's podcasts about books that the topic is super interesting, but I just can't like sit on a couch and listen to a podcast or do the dishes and listen to. I can't. Right. I can watch like hello. Uh, interviews on screen I can do so right. if it's a podcast uh, about bike racing uh, I watch it on YouTube as an interview between people that's perfectly fine right. so the mysteries of the human mind so podcasts are not for me so I'm not going to recommend any podcast uh, but books are very much me uh, so if nothing else I could be reading for the rest of my life and then uh, my recommendation would be fiction so you started asking the question and I thought, oh, you should read fiction. And then you said, 
even fiction like, no but the, <laughs> the reason i say that is because sometimes people feel like they have to mention something that's related to what we just talked about ah no and but so, then in this and so i would even if you wouldn't suggest i would say uh, fiction because and then if you would only read fiction maybe i would say non-fiction <laughs> it's just uh yeah fiction to me is that like if you're looking for uh meaning of life or truth or anything just read fiction it's there like it's the closest you can get to the the human condition why is that let's go Malraux. we take a french one la condition humaine mm-hmm. somewhere written in the 20s or 30s read that one andre Malraux. that's just uh yeah so the absurdity of life and humans struggling with uh well with themselves other people that's just that's that's to me what it all comes uh, comes down to in the end because again i see all this technical stuff is very uh, interesting but what makes it very set of satisfying for me these things is that i can share this solution with you max as a human right otherwise it would be nothing yeah. like what is in uh, a book that is never read like this philosophical stuff so i also feel this like this technical stuff and these solutions and puzzles that's it, it the meaning is created by the interaction with other people and uh, and humans why is fiction uh, a, a good place for that i don't know i think it's uh well it's so i see also what what we are doing right now is we're telling stories to yeah. each other right and it's like the the it's impossible to grasp the complexity of life and then we have like the map and the territory there's models and there's mathematics but all is just an approximation of uh, of the complexity of life and we the, the maybe the maximum thing we can do is realize that we can't grasp it right you make a model and the only conclusion is that you don't really don't understand <laughs> and then and then with fiction is that like it's like the the only thing to me maybe music but it's a bit it's a bit different like that approaches something of this magic of life like in fiction you can say this and especially poetry but some fiction like and then i'm not talking about uh what's this stuff uh, i even don't remember the name uh, Leo, the da vinci code uh, the dan brown that's like i don't count that as fiction that's just <laughs> yeah why not because there's no imagination there's no ambiguity like there's there's a flat characters and then he describes what you as a reader uh should feel like all the characters and all their feelings are described and Mm. then if this if it's good or the fiction i like is that they they don't say he was nervous but they describe a nervous person like the behavior of a nervous person and then then it also becomes like there's no the fiction is not like is disconnected from the author so the author maybe they have an intention but they write it uh, but it only becomes alive uh, while reading it so the interaction between you and the book and then you give your own interpretation to these things and it's ambiguous that makes it makes it uh, rich and maybe if you reread it or and this is another thing there's like the uh, intercontextuality i'm not sure if that's the proper term like there's the relation between uh, books and culture and canon and that's so it becomes richer and richer and richer and that's what i really really uh, uh, like about uh, literature 
and reading fiction. Um, Do you have any other recommendations? Like names that, or like, yeah, books that come so to mind? My, yeah, uh, so Camus, Albert Camus, that's mm -hmm. my favorite, uh, one of my favorite uh, authors. So that's like The Stranger. Would be the one Stranger, of those. and then your French, L'Etranger. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, part of it is lost that's the because one. in French, étranger uh, is uh, like uh, the stranger indeed, but it's also outsider. Yeah. So it's a double meaning. It's more like the, it, like it's a really, it's this, yeah, it's the stranger as in strange, as in yeah. like weird. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's the outsider. So about this indeed, and that, that well, it, Camus and, and the past, which is uh, also a famous one. Yeah. Um, but so I really like, I mean, for example, The Stranger, there's this, uh, The Cure song, Killing an Arab, and it starts with uh, standing on the beach with a gun in my hand. And it, I never, like, I told someone, oh, did you listen to this song? And then I was telling it, and then it occurred to me, this is about The Stranger, the, the, the Camus novel, because mm. it's about killing an Arab, right? That's the, the, the theme or the topic of the, of the novel. So that's also this, like, interplay in culture, then it comes back into this uh, musical uh, theme that I like. But Camus is, uh, I like, and uh, André Monroe, I like, there's a thousand others. Um, I'm now actually reading uh, the memoirs of uh, Simone de Beauvoir. So that's right. not, not fiction, but... Uh, so yeah. if, then from her, if I would recommend a book, that would be The Mandarins. Okay. Uh, that's actually, so it's... Uh, it's fiction, but there's like there's, there's Camus, Sartre, and uh, yeah. Beauvoir <laughs> within there. Uh, and it's really also their struggle with uh, like they're young and uh, ambitious, and they think that the society can be made and built uh, very much like I think it's a, a related to the Chinese Mandarin uh, culture where uh, this is done. And then, of course, they fail. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Do I? I don't usually like. I don't usually ask that, but I like asking it more and more now. Do you have advice for like younger people, or people like starting like professionally or just in life in general? Life in general. Well. <laughs> so for professionally, I uh, so I recommend people to. Uh, in life in general, uh, maybe no, so I'm jumping a bit, but in life, so if I look at myself and then I said, I don't have any like life plan or big stuff, but I do have an approach to choices. And especially when you're young, if you're faced with an option or a choice, um, consider, uh, consider the context and try to make the choice that increases your opportunities. So if you can do two things, then pick the one that increases your opportunities the most, <laughs> because it will give you like more experience. Like you did, you went to uh, Finland to work with ISI. That's a very clear, like it's an extension of the stuff you learned here. Uh, but there's like on multiple dimensions, it increased your opportunities, like working in a different uh, culture, a different environment, working for like a real startup startup, <laughs> right? Uh, working for a, a satellite hardware company. So there's a lot of things which are new to you uh, with other people. 
And by doing that, actually, you got a more clear definition of your, like you also thought, oh, this is maybe not for me. Mm. And then you make your next step. So this is also how I navigate through life. Uh, the only mistake is made uh, I made is uh, uh, getting children because this I didn't know, but it limits your opportunities. <laughs> no, no yeah. children are great, but oh, no. so if you take children, pick two, not one. This will uh, you will be uh, thankful to yourself after four years. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and so the basic thing, if you are faced with uh, uh, dilemmas or choices, try to pick the one that increases your opportunities. Uh, so that may be the scary one uh, or the out of your comfort zone one. Um, and then uh, professionally, if you start working, uh, again, we talk about evil companies. I think it's super valuable to, especially early career, uh, work for big corp like uh, one of the big accountancy firms, uh, right. maybe a big uh, Unilever. Uh, you know, there's a lot of shit and stuff wrong about it, but there's also a ton to learn. And I think this is one of the fastest way to learn how a professional working environment works because there's also a lot of good stuff. Right. And it doesn't hurt your CV. Yeah. Right. Oh. I see you worked uh, three years for McKinsey, like in the start. <laughs> uh, although like the lowest level of McKinsey is just, you know, the, the way they, they, they have like this Darwinistic, Darwinistic uh, policy up or out, which is in a mm. way horrible, but uh, so that I would like, and then especially early career when you're more like resilient and uh, flexible and uh, more sponge-like, to learn stuff and then after that and maybe it's for you you know there can be i can totally see that's one of the things i would i never worked for a big corp directly uh, but i would love to uh, not love i'm very curious in how i would function mm. in such an environment i think there's a lot of uh, yeah opportunities uh, to be get there so that will be one thing. And the other one is then uh, indeed don't like, don't change for the change, but uh, be open for the opportunity. So it's not that, oh, I have to change jobs because it's good for my career. Just start working that you think fits for you, but be open, especially early to uh, other opportunities and they will come by. <laughs> and it's, it's just recognizing the opportunity and decide if you would like to do it or not. And don't be scared of the the four to six year itch. So any company you work for, after four or five years, it starts itching. <laughs> Just per definition, like in my previous company, which had a very, I also super enjoyed, and I would still be working there if intelligence wouldn't uh, come by. Uh, so they also have very specific working culture. And there was this one guy who was like the personification of the the whole company culture and then he left and everyone is what and he started working for this uh, uh i think government or uh, utility company and then uh, two years later he came back right so that's fine because after if you work somewhere for five years even if it's your dream job it will you know mm. itch a bit and don't be scared of that just explore and come back because if it's your dream job they will also take you back and if they don't take you back, 
It wasn't your dream job. <laughs> Can't go wrong. <laughs> Thanks for the chat. It was really cool. Thank you for having uh, us. Is that the woke thing to say? <laughs> I don't We didn't even touch woke, uh, Max. Yeah, do you want to touch about it quickly? No, 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 no. I'm too, uh, like, this, the, the one, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm scared of nothing and that's one of the problems. The, the thing I'm concerned about or the thing I can't see happening is that I get into a lot of trouble unintentionally because of something I said, which is like picked up. So this is one of the things in fiction. There's this book. I don't think it's translated by a Dutch author, Rob van Essen, called Visser. And that's about a teacher. And then he gets himself uh, in a situation where he's like... Uh, accused of something but it's not very clear of what <laughs> and also the source is not very clear and then the way and so it's very very strange that he's suddenly in this situation that he doesn't want to be and then there's the rumors and stuff it's uh, it's very so i i read the book and i thought okay this is gonna happen to me you know <laughs> one day you come to the office and then there's this look of everyone and you don't understand why and then 20 years later at your funeral there's there's a guy saying and at that day <laughs> so you will never know but this this i think this this might happen to me once what what gives you that sense um yeah i don't know you think it's the like dutch side that clashes with the more international setting no, 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 not that. No, the Dutch with Dutch. No, so I don't think it's a cultural thing, but there's just uh, a, a huge misunderstanding. Okay. It could. Maybe it's already happening. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's why I think it's so important to... I mean, I'm really biased, but I like having these longer conversations. Like, you get to set the context and like, oh, this is who this Aryan guy is. Yeah. Like, you, you get to hear someone speak their ideas and you're like they're not evil you know back to that yeah, they're like yeah. very eloquent person they have thoughts they have things that make a lot of sense yeah and then if there's like something like everybody has opinions that are pretty outrageous on stuff i think um but it's about putting them back on in, in in their context and understanding yes. where people come from yeah indeed yeah yes I'll tell you if you get in trouble because of this. <laughs> Thank you, Max. We can suffer together. <laughs> yeah. All right.